Good morning. It's good to be with you this Memorial Day weekend. I hope that uh, since you all didn't get a chance to get away this weekend, that you're at least going to be able to enjoy the extra day off and get a little rest and relaxation. Well, this morning, in case you haven't pieced it all together, Brock, standing up on stage, big church, (laughs) wearing a suit, Jack out of town, Philippians on the marquee. This morning, we are going to be continuing along in our series on Philippians. And, you know, it's, it's, it's getting a little embarrassing because uh, this morning, when Tim read from Philippians chapter 2, my daughter kind of looked over at me like, did he get your permission to be able to use Philippians? She kind of gave me that kind of look. So I think it's almost time to move on here. I think my kids are starting to think I own the book of Philippians. So. <laughs> Because this is a series that started back in August of 2002, so it goes, goes pretty far back. Uh, it's a series that's kind of inched its way forward over the past few years, and yet I, I trust that it has been a series that has challenged you to live your Christian life with great joy. I think the epistle to the Philippians is a letter like none other in that it challenges us. Uh, better yet, I would say it commands us. To live a life of, of joy. It is a letter, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, a man who had his share of trials and challenges. It was a letter that was written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, and yet throughout the entirety of the letter, there is no woe is me, there is no feel sorry for me, there is no pity me coming from Paul's lips. The letter is a letter of sheer joy. And is a letter that flows from a heart that has been overwhelmed by the gospel of grace. Philippians is a letter that each of us would do very well to read over and over and over again to ensure that we do not lose the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. We live in a world that seems set on displacing our joy. It is a world that tells us that we can find joy in the things that it has to offer, joy in a bigger house, joy in a nicer car, joy in a higher paying job. But as many of us have found out, the joy that this world has to offer is short-lived. It is a passing, fleeting joy. It is a joy that boasts of great satisfaction, but it leaves all those who drink from its well still feeling thirsty. But this is not the joy that is found in the letter to the Philippians. For the joy that we find here is not based upon one's circumstances, but rather it is based on one's position in Christ. It is a joy that is grounded in the unchanging promises and the unchanging truths of an unchanging God. A God who is sovereign, a God who is constantly at work, causing all things to work together for our good and for His glory. It is a joy that produces a peace that surpasses all understanding. So this morning... I want to come to you with tidings of comfort and joy. It's a little Christmas plug for Brody there. He likes Christmas getting started early. so. But I do come with that message. I want you to drink from the well that never runs dry. I want to help you to experience both the joy and the peace that are yours 
Despite your circumstances, despite your failings, despite whatever trial or deal you are currently going through, I come this morning with tidings of comfort and joy. So open up your Bibles and follow along as we read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise... Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Wrapped up within these verses are four steps that you must take if you are to experience the joy and the peace that God's word calls you to experience. Four steps that will forever lead you away from the misguided joy and peace of this world and on to the biblical path that is found in the word of God. If you are to experience the joy and the peace that God's word calls you to experience, then the first step that you must take is live in lieu of Christ's return. Live in lieu of Christ's return. How different do you think we might live if we knew that the Lord was coming back In six months. How radically altered would your life become. If you actually knew the day of Christ's return. What would you change? How quickly would you change it? And while you and I do not know the exact date. We're not sure when Christ is coming back again. But we do know that he is. And according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Therefore, you and I are called to be a people who are not to sleep as others do, but we are called to be alert and sober, anxiously awaiting the arrival of our king. But let me ask you this. Are you living in lieu of Christ's return? Is your life structured such that you are living as if the Lord is near? Or does that reality never even really cross your mind? For the Apostle Paul, Christ's return was a reality that shaped everything that he did. It was his confidence in the risen Savior's return that enabled Paul to find joy in the midst of his trials. It was his confidence in the risen Savior's return that enabled Paul to conduct himself with a spirit of gentleness and love. And the same is to be true for each and every one of us that would call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ. 
D. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. He says, as Christian people, we have an entirely new view of life. We see things always in light of the Lord. We see everything in the light of the salvation that he brought by his life, by his birth, his death, his resurrection and ascension. We see it all in the light of the fact that he is going to return again to the earth to conquer all his enemies and to bring in an entirely new order. The Lord is at hand. Living in lieu of Christ's return will promote certain qualities within the life of the believer. And Paul points out just two of them in our text this morning. So follow along as we look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. There is a joy in looking to Christ's return. There is a joy in looking to that day when Christ will return to set up his earthly kingdom. There is a joy in things being made right, in things being restored to their natural order, the way things were meant to be, the way things were before the fall. There is a joy in God's children being reunited with him and reigning with him as joint heirs forever. So let me ask you this. Do you know this joy? Do you have it? Are you someone who rejoices over these things? Or do they mean very little to you? The joy that is being talked about here is a joy that is not based upon one's circumstances, which is exactly why Paul can actually command us to rejoice. It is a joy that is grounded in the work and in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a joy that is firmly planted in the rich soil of redemption, a joy that eagerly looks forward to the full manifestation of all of God's promises to his children as realized in his second coming. So yes, brothers and sisters, when we live in light of Christ's return, we can't help but rejoice in the awesome promises that await us. In addition to joy, however, we also find that living in light of Christ's return will promote in us a gentle spirit rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice let your gentle spirit be known to all men the lord is near now i'm sure that if i were to take a poll and i were to ask each of you that is here this morning which of these two commands is easier to follow either rejoicing in the lord always or letting your gentle spirit be known to all men And if you had to give me an answer, if you couldn't wimp out on me and say, oh, Brock, they're both so very hard. I don't think I could decide that. No, you need to decide. If you took a stand on one or the other, I would say that most of us would likely say that letting our gentle spirit be known to all men would be pretty difficult. Rejoicing in the Lord, I mean, is fairly easy. I mean, all we have to do is take some time to remember how lost and sin-cursed we were. The fact that Christ died for us, we're able to instantly rejoice over that. But to have a gentle spirit that is evidenced 
before all men, before that coworker at the office that is crude and obnoxious, before that person on the freeway that just cuts you off, before that teacher at school that just seems to have a chip on his shoulder, before that spouse that has sinned against you, before that child that has defied your request again, before that individual, whoever they may be, that has displayed anything but a gentle spirit to you, well, I think we would have to agree that that would indeed be much harder. I mean, rejoicing, you know what, just give me a second. Let me put things into their proper perspective. And I, I, I can handle that. I can do that. But a gentle spirit. That means dying to myself. That means living in a way that seems completely contrary to my prideful nature. That would mean that I would have to be very Christ-like. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23 gives us some insight as to how this gentle spirit is to look. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. A gentle spirit requires restraint. A gentle spirit is a willful and deliberate choice to go against the urging to exercise your rights and your preferences. As one commentator put it, a gentle spirit is to be the spirit of willingness to yield under trial, which will show itself in a refusal to retaliate when attacked. Yes, I would say a gentle spirit is indeed a difficult thing to practice. I would even go so far as to say that it is an impossible thing to practice apart from the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And yet, with the Holy Spirit's help, we too can obey this command to let our gentle spirit be made known to all men. We too can experience the joy and the peace that come from walking in obedience to the word of God. We too can become imitators of Jesus Christ as we live in lieu of his return. We too can bring glory to the one who is worthy of all glory. But if we are to do this, then we need to start living like Jesus is coming back today. His impending return must cause our hearts to be filled with joy. It must move us to follow the glorious example that he had set forth as he walked upon the face of this earth. The more you and I live in lieu of Christ's return, the more we will begin to experience the joy and the peace that God's word calls us to experience. Now, having discussed the first step that you must take in your pursuit of joy and peace... We're now ready to take a look at the second. If you are ever going to experience the joy and peace that is yours in Christ, then you must learn to trust God through prayer. Learn to trust God through prayer. Let's look at the next two verses. 
Picking it up in verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wrapped up in verse 6, we find Paul issuing two more commands. The first one is a negative one. Be anxious for nothing. While the second one is a positive one. Let your request be made known to God. In essence, what Paul is trying to tell us, he's trying to say, listen, don't worry, pray. Don't worry, don't fret, pray. And the reason that Paul calls us to do this is because nothing, nothing will rob the Christian of his joy more than worry. Because when we worry, what we are really doing is we are failing to trust God. In a sense, we are telling the God who simply spoke everything into existence. Out of nothing, mind you. But this God who did that, we are now telling him, look, you're not big enough. You're not big enough to handle this issue. I mean, for those of you who have ever worried, have you ever stepped back and and just examined your worry? Have you ever just put it under the microscope and, and, and tried to dissect it in order to see what was really there, what was really behind it? Well, if you did, what you would find at the core of your anxiety is unbelief. What you would find is a heart that is failing to take God at his word. A heart that refuses to embrace the words of Christ when he said in Matthew 6, 26 and 27, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Jack J. Muller, in his work entitled The Epistles of Paul to the Philippians and Philemon, wrote these words regarding anxiety. He says, quote, To care is a virtue, but to foster cares is sin. For each anxiety is not trust in God, but trusting in oneself, which comes to inward suffering, fears, and worry. When you become anxious, what you are doing is you are ripping the matter right out of God's hand, and you are attempting to place it in your own. Now, I know that sounds absurd, and I know that none of you would say to me, Brock, that is consciously what I'm doing. I am purposely trying to take this thing from God because I think I can handle it better. I know you wouldn't tell me that, but it, if that's not what you're doing, then what is it? If anxiety isn't your way of dealing with the situation in comparison to trusting God, then what is it? Now, some may say, but Brock, what am I to do? My cash flow isn't quite what I would want it to be. My relationship with my spouse is falling apart. My kids are going down the wrong path. My health isn't so good. What do you want me to do, Brock? 
Do you just want me to close my eyes and pretend like none of this is happening? Just put on the smile and make sure that, you know what, it's just all right. Is that what you're telling me to do, Brock? Just just pretend. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. George Mueller puts it well when he says that the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith and the beginning of faith is the end of anxiety. You and I can and must do away with anxiety and the sorrow and the unrest that accompany it. And we must do this by learning to trust God through prayer. The positive command that Paul offers as the alternative to anxiety is for us to let our requests be made known to God. And when we do this, when we offer up our prayers and supplications to God with thanksgiving, we are trusting in both his goodness and in his sovereignty. We are acknowledging that he is God and that he alone sits on the throne and that there is nothing Nothing that is too big or too difficult for him to take care of in his perfect timing in accordance to his perfect will. Praying to God with thanksgiving no matter how things may ultimately work out is the Christian's grandest display of faith. And this is the amazing part. When we come to God in this way, the way that he is worthy of and deserving of, when we come to him like that, when we simply do what we're supposed to do, God's word makes us this incredible promise in Philippians 4, 7. It tells us that if we go to him in prayer, thanksgiving, that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you and I make a conscious effort to turn away from self-reliance, our anxiety, unto a reliance on God through prayer, God promises to give us His peace. And let me just assure you that the peace of God is unlike the peace that this world will try to offer you. Jesus made this perfectly clear as he spoke these words to his disciples in John chapter 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. When we learn to trust God through prayer, he will graciously give us a peace that defies all logic. It'll be a peace that the world just won't even begin to fathom. They won't even begin to grasp it. They're going to wonder why you're not freaking out like they do. It will be a peace that will actually guard your hearts and your minds. That peace can be ours when we learn to trust God through prayer. When we do this, We're told that he will actually put his peace on guard of our hearts and our minds so as to keep them safe from the attacks of anxiety and despair. Now, don't miss this. This is huge. Many of us are anxious. Many of us are despairing because we fail to embrace this great truth. 
We do not have the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds because we failed to pray as we ought to. Anxiety and despair have crept in and they are wreaking their havoc in our lives all because we failed to humble ourselves and pray to the one who has promised to guard our hearts and our minds. If you and I are ever going to experience the joy and the peace that is ours in Christ, then we must learn to trust God through prayer. Which brings us to the third step that you must take in your pursuit of joy and peace. If you are to experience the joy and peace that God's word calls you to experience, then the third step that you must take is to linger on the magnificence of the gospel. Linger on the magnificence of the gospel. Follow along as we continue in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What a great verse. How different our lives would be if we simply just took this verse to heart. How much more joy and peace would flow forth from our lives if we just took the time to linger on the magnificence of the gospel. Jerry Bridges in his work entitled The Discipline of Grace writes this. He says, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history. It is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we all know thousands, we all allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without understanding it clearly and experiencing the joy of living by it. Every day, the world seems to beckon us to forsake the gospel, to forget the depths of our depravity, to somehow think that, you know what, you're not really all that bad. You're better than most. You're deserving of salvation. But that is why verse 8 is so critical to our joy and peace. While the world would want to pull us away from the gospel, verse 8 commands us to linger on it. It is a command to look to the cross. It is a command to see Christ's nailed, pierced hands and feet. It is a command to look anew at his lacerated back and his bloody brow. It is the call to... See the hole that was placed in his side by the spear. It is a time to remember his death. A call to reflect on the wonder of his resurrection. And to finally rejoice in his imminent return. For these are the things that are true. These are the things that are honorable. The things that are right, pure, lovely, of good repute and worthy of praise. The fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us is an amazing fact that we would do well to linger upon. And yet, how often, how often do we take the time to just let our minds linger on these types of things? Let me ask you a few more questions. What do you allow your mind to linger on? 
What sorts of things do you permit your mind to be exposed to? How does the gospel affect your thinking? Does it affect your thinking at all? Brothers and sisters, there is a battle that is taking place inside each and every one of us, and it is a battle for our minds. Therefore, we need to do all that we can to engage in this battle. There is no room for spiritual laziness when it comes to our thought life. Instead, there is to be an effort, a concentrated effort, to take every thought captive according to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Romans 12, 2 tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The gospel needs to permeate your mind. It must influence the manner in which you think, the manner in which you act. There must not be a day that goes by in which you do not linger on the gospel. There is simply too much at stake to let a day go by without reflecting on all that Christ has done. We must never fall prey to Satan's attempts, his schemes, his devices. If you and I are to experience joy and peace, then we need to linger on the good news of Jesus Christ We must fill our minds with the promises that are now ours as as those who have been forever changed by the gospel. We need to take it all in and be reminded of all that God has done for us through the gospel. Sit back and listen to the promises and see how they are now applicable to you as a result of the gospel if you've trusted in the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 says this, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. As we linger on the magnificence of the gospel, we can't help but experience the joy and the peace that it brings. How amazing it is to think about the grace, to think about the mercy, to think about the love that God has poured out to us in his son. Linger on it. Take a moment, take it in, be absorbed in it every day. Never forget the fact that the gospel is good news. Having covered our need to live in lieu of Christ's return, our need to trust God through prayer, our need to linger on the magnificence of the gospel, 
We are now ready to look at the fourth and final step that you must take in your pursuit of joy and peace. If you are to experience the joy and peace that God's word calls you to, then you must look to the example of others. Look to the example of others. Follow along as we conclude with verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. As we have seen throughout the book of Philippians, Paul was not just somebody who knew the gospel. He lived the gospel. And the joy and the peace that he had come to experience was something that he wanted all believers of all time to be able to embrace and to take part in. His joy and his peace did not come from his circumstances, but rather they flowed forth from a life that was fully devoted to Jesus Christ. A life that was lived in lieu of Christ's return. A life that had learned to trust God through prayer. A life that had taken the time to linger on the magnificence of the gospel. For this reason, you and I can look to Paul as an example to follow after. And while we're not able to interact with him in the same way that the the church in Philippi was, his life is still laid bare in the pages of Scripture for us to look to and to follow. Without question, Paul was somebody who endured much hardship for the sake of the gospel, and yet his passion for Christ, his love for Christ, his joy, his peace never burned out. He kept pressing on despite what happened. But you know, Paul is not the only one that we can look to for guidance. The book of Hebrews points us to a whole cast of characters whose faith is is laid out for us to follow. It's exemplary. Men and women who counted the sufferings of this life a small price to pay for their knowing God. By looking at the examples of others, you and I can be greatly encouraged to press on in our service to Christ. And while the Bible is an excellent place to start... It by no means is the only place for us to find people whose joy and peace did not depend upon their circumstances. John Piper has an excellent series of books called The The Swans Cry Out that will do much to inspire us to live as we ought. In them, he offers some insight into the lives of people like Athanasius, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Bunyan, John Owen, just to name a few. Each story reminds us of what God can do through the life of the one who is more concerned with knowing Christ rather than knowing the comforts of this world. Each story inspires us to examine our lives against these faithful servants to see where we might need to change. But you know, books aren't the only place for us to be able to get those examples. The church is full of people for us to glean this from people that despite their circumstances are full of joy and peace, a joy and peace that the world doesn't get. You know, periodically I have a chance to go out and visit people in the, in the hospital. 
and I'm, I'm going there to, you know, encourage them and to just build them up and, and, and help them through their difficult time. And you know what? There are some people that I feel a little guilty because I, I walk away more encouraged than I'm sure they did from my visit. I mean, just hearing them talk about God and what God is doing, despite the pain, despite the difficulties, there is joy in them and it is genuine, it is sincere, it comes because they have trusted in Jesus Christ and not in their, in their circumstances. All of these examples, whether it be Paul or the Old Testament saints or people that in books or people of the church, the one thing that all of these that makes all of these people's lives worth following is not the fact that they had a bunch of knowledge, but it was the fact that they chose to follow Jesus. The one thing that makes their life worth following is the fact that they acted upon their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters of Calvary Bible Church, can I speak candidly with you for a minute? Without question, I would say we are a church that has been blessed with great knowledge. We know a lot. There are some of you out there that, quite frankly, I would be scared to talk to you because you probably know more about God's word than I do, and I'm a pastor. We are blessed. And while knowledge is important, it means very little if it is not practiced and acted upon. You will not have joy and peace simply because you have knowledge. Your knowledge will not bring you joy and peace unless you act upon it. Paul says that it is when we practice what we know, that is when we can expect the peace of God to be with us. It is my fear that some of you are quite content with your knowledge. Some of you are content with the fact that you know what you should do. You know you should give. You know you should practice humility. You know you should speak truth. You know, you know, you know. And yet, you do not do. And you wonder... You sit there scratching your head sometimes and you wonder why you do not have joy and peace in your life. The joy and peace that is not circumstantial, but that is grounded in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Let us never be a church that is content with a mere acquaintance of things, but rather let us be a church that is daily absorbed in the doing of things out of love for the one who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Let us be a church that is seen in our community as a church of doers, not merely a church of knowers. John thirteen seventeen puts it well. It says, if you know these things, you are blessed if... You do them. It would be my prayer that today's message would not just get filed away in your memory banks, never to be practiced, 
but instead that each and every one of us would take these four steps such that we might experience the joy and peace that come from doing. Today we touched on our need to live in lieu of Christ's return, our need to learn to trust God through prayer, our need to linger on the magnificence of the gospel, and our need to look to the examples of others. If we do these things, if we commit to these things, then we too can have a joy and a peace that can stand no matter what our lot in life may be, no matter what the Lord may allow to come into our lives. Because these steps, as we have said, are not grounded in our circumstances. Instead, they are grounded in the promises of a promise-keeping God. May we be faithful to take these steps from this day forward. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are indeed good. And I just pray for every man and woman in here that you will just work in their hearts, that you will allow this morning's message to to penetrate their hearts, Lord. And if they have been disobedient in any of these areas, Lord, I, I pray, I pray that you will just convict them of that. And I pray that you will give them the grace and the strength to start practicing, to start taking these steps so that they might have that joy and peace that you promise us. Lord, you are so good. You give us so much. You bless us so abundantly. Lord, may none none of us take that for granted. May your grace and your mercy move us to a greater devotion and appreciation for who you are. Lord, help us to take these four steps. Help us to grow in our joy and in our peace. And Lord, may we just give you all the praise and the glory. May Calvary Bible Church be a church that is just overflowing with joy and peace. For your glory we ask this. Amen.